name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. In our yearly celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, it's just around the corner. It's um, April 4th this year, so I think it's like three more Sundays or two more Sundays, something like that. So it's just around the corner. And so as I was thinking earlier in the year, planning for, planning for that, I thought it'd be nice to take a few Sundays to prep us for that day. And uh, what I thought I would do is I would go to the Old Testament and I would look at the places where God, in a way, sort of promised that he would provide Jesus for us long before he actually came. The death of Jesus is something that's been a part of God's plan and God's heart from, from the very beginning. Listen to Peter. This is Peter in his first letter. He says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And here's the verse. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So Peter says, hey, listen, before God ever created anything, he had already in his mind, if you would, in his mind's heart, he'd already sacrificed Christ all the way back then. This first story that I've chosen to point us to the providing of Jesus for us is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Aram. And uh, of all the stories in Abraham's life, this story towers above all the others. I'm, I'm sure you will agree with this. If you're a parent, I mean, this story can't help but just grip your heart as you put yourself in Abraham's spot. Epi Myers wrote, So long as men are in the world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. There is only one scene in history in which it is surpassed, and that is where the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance. So this morning, as we consider this story, I want to note three aspects about it. The first one's going to be the problems with it. The second one's going to be the priority it portrays. And then finally, the provision it promises. And really, that last piece is why I chose that story, this narrative, for our preparation for the resurrection of Jesus. But we're going to look at all three parts, and let's dive in. The first part I've talked about is the problem it presents. There is one large and looming problem with this text. And that problem, of course, is you probably already know it, if you, can't, if you, you probably can guess it, it is that it, it casts aspersions on the character of God. How can the God of the Bible, how can the God that's revealed to us in Jesus, how could he possibly ask Abraham to kill his own son. Here's God's instructions, chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So let's be clear what God was asking him to do. Because, so, you know, sometimes we can just gloss over this thing. Here, here's what God was asking Abraham to do. He asked him to take his son and travel with him and go to Mount Moriah, climb Mount Moriah. And there on Mount Moriah, he was to build an altar out of stones. 
And then he was to take some wood and he was to put a bed of wood on that altar of stones. And then he was to take his son and he was to take a knife and he was to slit his, thro his son's throat. And then he was to watch his son bleed out. And then when his son had died, God was asking Abraham to light fire to the pyre and, uh, and, or to the pile of wood and light fire to it and burn up his son. That's what God was asking Abraham to do. Now, some critics have dismissed this story. It couldn't possibly be from God because it's so contrary to the character of God. This is a pagan practice. And, uh, and, and, you, know, and you know, even in the Old Testament, God says when, when the pagans were offering their sons to the god Moloch by burning them alive or throwing them off of cliffs, God said, that kind of thing never entered into my heart. I never thought of such a thing. That was an abomination to him. And so they say, you know, God could not possibly have asked Abraham this. And I want you to know, I understand their feelings. I guess maybe you do too. I don't know. But I know I understand their feelings. It's led some Bible students to try to reinterpret the story and, and to make it something other than what it is. But listen to me carefully. That is intellectually impossible to do if you hold to the authority of Scripture. If you believe the Bible to be God's word, you can't dismiss the story. You can't change it. And here's a couple of reasons why. One of them is James takes the story and it uses it as an epitome of what true faith is. And so here's what James says about the story. James 2, verse 20, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with its works, and by works faith was made complete, and the scripture was fulfilled, saying Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So you see, if you dismiss the story or change the story or say Abraham didn't really hear from God and what he did wasn't God's will, it wasn't what God asked him to do, then, then you mess up James's analogy. Or how about the author of Hebrews? Here's what he says about this event. He says in chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Now, my point is simply this. If you put stock in the word of God, you cannot get around this story by blaming Abraham for misinterpreting God or misunderstanding God. There's only one answer to the criticism, and you know what that is. And here's the answer. And you're not going to like it, especially if you're a critic. But if you are a critic of the story, you're not going to like my answer. But here it is. It's, you, who are you? to tell God what he can and cannot ask of any of us. That would be my answer to, to the criticism. Now, I will say, I will say about this that um, people try to get around the criticism, criticism by reading the story backwards. And what I mean by that is, in the end of the day, God does not require of Abraham that he kill Isaac, right? And he's, he's provided a substitute. And they say, see, God, God knew all along. He was never really asking Abraham to kill his son. And although that's a true statement on some level, everybody listen to me carefully. I mean, whatever you think about that, as far as Abraham was concerned, this was a very real request from God. And not only was it a very real request from God, it was Abraham's very real intention 
to carry it out. He thought it was something that God seriously wanted from him. That's the problem with the story. Let's move to the second aspect of the story that I, I want you to see, and that is the priority that the story portrays. Now, the narrative begins like this. God desired to test Abraham. Now, notice it says that God desired to test Abraham and not tempt him. Now, if you happen to be reading a king, anybody reading from the King James this morning? Okay, a couple of you are. So in your King James Bible, it says God desired to tempt Abraham. The same root word is used of testing and of tempting, which means this, that you have to understand the context to decide whether this is a temptation or whether this is going to be uh, a test. The book of James tells us something really insightful about God and about ourselves. He says that God does not tempt you. So God's never tempting us, okay? Now God does test us, same root word, same word, God does test us, but God does not tempt us. Alexander McLaren says this, great preacher of the past. He said, and I quote, In temptation we are told, do this pleasant thing, and do not be hindered by the fact that it is wrong. But in testing we are told, do this difficult thing, and do not be hindered by the fact that it is tough. I mean, that's good, but I, but I think my own distinction that I came up with years ago, and I, I, it's probably not original to me, I probably read it somewhere, but, but to me, the way you distinguish between a temptation and a testing is the desired outcome of the event, whatever it is. If you're being tempted, the, the, the goal of your temptation is that you fail. The person tempting you, even your own self, the goal is that you fail. The, the goal of a testing is not that you fail, but that you succeed. In other words, when God tests us, same root word is tempting, God's desire is never that you fail. He does not test you so that you fail. He tests you so that you prove your mettle, that you prove that you are walking by the Spirit. He desires for you to succeed, not fall. And when the adversary tempts you, he, his desire is never that you succeed. He's tempting you so that you won't succeed. He's tempting you so that you will fail. Now, notice what God says to Abraham. I mean, it would simply have been enough for him to say, take your son. But that's not what he says. He qualifies it three ways. He says, take your only son. Now, at this point, Abraham had, an, had another son. His name was Ishmael. He was older than Isaac. Now, he was his firstborn son. I think he was 12 years older, wasn't he, than Isaac, if I remember correctly. Um, he doesn't tell him to take Ishmael. He says, take your only son. What, what does he mean by that? Because Isaac's not his only son. But Isaac is his only son of promise. Isaac's his only son that God said, I'm going to give you a son. And through him, you know, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And I'm going to raise up a great family for you. It's through Isaac, your only son through Sarah. Which is the second thing he says about his son. Take your only son, Isaac, the one you know that you waited 25 years for, the one that you had with the wife that, of your youth that you've loved, take that one, take Isaac. And then he says, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It might sound like God's mocking him, right? Hey, I'm going to ask for the son that you love. But I don't think he's mocking him. Uh, and I got this from someone else, but, and I think they're right, that he's there to reassure Abraham, I understand what I'm asking you. I understand how difficult this is for, for you 
to do. And, and I think Abraham would have appreciated that, would have understood the cost for him to obey. Now, in this test, God is asking Abraham, listen, to surrender the thing, in this case, a person, to, re to, rent, to surrender a relationship, this relationship that I would say maybe that he loved more maybe even than Sarah. He's asking him to, to surrender this thing of greatest value to him. God is testing Abraham to see whether or not he'll trust the Lord. And when Abraham does what God's asking him to do. You remember the, the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord, who some, by the way, suggest may have been Jesus. He says, now I know that you fear God. I want to go back to the, the last month's series of lessons, and I want to say, I honestly don't believe that what that angel of the Lord is saying to Abraham, now I understand that you're more afraid of what God's going to do to you than, than you love your son. I don't think that's what he means. I think he means you, you're, you're, you fear the Lord. And I think fear there is, is, is not being afraid of what God's going to do to him, but afraid of disappointing him, afraid of not trusting him, afraid of not believing all that God has said to be true. And uh, so I believe the test there was to see if Abraham would trust God even more than that which he loved the most on earth. Now, when I read that this week, I, I couldn't help but immediately go to Jesus and think about what, the Je what Jesus said to us. So you remember, Jesus said a number of things like this. For instance, uh, when asked what's the greatest commandment, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, everyone. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Let me give it to you another way. Treasure God above everything else in your life. That's what Jesus uh, answered to the question, what's the greatest commandment? And I believe it's almost like God is testing Abraham. Is, is, am I that which you treasure most? Am I that which is of greatest value to you? Another time, Jesus is walking down the road. And he's got all his followers with him. And the Bible says he stops and he turns to him and he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I've said this many times. That's a Jewish idiom. It's like it's raining cats and dogs, right? It's just a Jewish way of saying you, you choose something, you value something above everything else. Jesus is not asking you to hate your mother. He's not asking you to hate your wife or your children or your parents. What he's saying is treasure me above those. If you're not willing to treasure me above those, you're not, you're, not, you're not able to be my disciple unless you're willing to treasure me above those things. And then he says this, even your own life, treasure me above your own life. And I'm saying to all of us this morning that what God was doing with Abraham that day was testing him, what do you treasure most? What's going to be the priority of your life? Is it going to be your son, your, your relationships, or is it going to be me? There are at least two hints to Abraham's strength of faith in this, in this story, uh, his love for God, his confidence in God. And we see it in what happens next, verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took, him, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there and worship, and then we'll come back to you. 
Here's the first thing I want you to note about Abraham's strength. It says that he obeyed immediately. Next morning, he got up and he left. Now, and again, I mean, uh, the story could have left it out. Maybe he argued with God for a while before he actually did what God told him to do, but that's not the implication. The implication is he did it without lingering. He did it without loitering. He did it without questioning. And the second evidence, I think, of, of Abraham's faith was what he told his servants when he left them there. He said, listen, my son and I are going to go worship over here, and, uh, and we're going to come back to you in a few days. That could have meant, Abraham could have been saying something like this. Hey, guys, I mean, he could have been not wanting to say something like this. Hey, guys, I'm going to take my son, and I'm going to go up on the mountain, I'm going to slit his throat and burn his body, and then I'll come back in a few days. He just didn't want to tell him that, so he just simply said, hey, me and my son will be back in a few days. I don't think that's what Abraham meant. I mean, I can't know for sure, but I think Abraham is actually saying with confidence, Isaac and I will be back. Even though God's asked me to do this incredible thing, uh, Isaac and I will be back. And this is probably what the author of Hebrews had in mind in the passage I read to you earlier. Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. It could have been that when Abraham took the knife, and, I, and by the way, I don't believe that's probably what Abraham thought at the very beginning. I'll explain in just a moment. I think Abraham probably had another idea of what was going to happen, but, uh, but that didn't happen. And then when he took the knife, I, I think Abraham said to himself, well, God can raise my son back to life. If I do this, God can raise. And I think that's the implication of verse 19. But when, when Abraham left those men there and said, we'll be back, I think he had another idea. And I'll share that with you in just a few moments is what I think was going through his mind. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And in his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. I'm going to skip to verse 9. When Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here am I. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Now, how close did Abraham get uh, to uh, taking the knife and, and cutting his son's throat? I, I want to suggest, I, I don't think he got very close. I, I don't think that God let Abraham... I don't think God let Isaac see his father raise the knife to slice his. I don't think that happened. Again, I'm speculating it doesn't tell us. But, but I think it was before then. I think it's when he grabbed the knife and he took the knife. God knew. God knew he was going to do it. And he stopped him at that moment. That would be my thought here about this. Um, in some ways, since God knows all possible futures, everyone, this test was as much for Abraham as it was for God. Think about this for just a moment. There are times in the Old Testament where God, David says, God, if I go up against them, will I win? And God says, nope, you go up against them. Or, or will they betray me if I do this? And God says, yes, they'll betray you. So he doesn't do it, right? So what about what God just said that that was going to happen? How about Nineveh? You know, Jonah prophesied to Nineveh, 40 days you're going to be destroyed. But they weren't destroyed. Was God wrong? 
God knows all possible futures. And, and so when, when God says some things in the future may happen, it's because if certain things do happen, God knows these things will happen. And in this case, God, God would know whether Abraham would succeed or not in this test. And uh, so in, in some ways, this test is about Abraham as much as it is about God. So when Abraham walks away, Abraham knew, man, I was faithful. I don't know about you. Have you ever been tested? Have you ever been tested? You know it's a test, and you walk away from the test, and you've been successful, and you know there's just something inside of you. You just, man, you're just so blessed because you were faithful. Abraham had tripped up a number of times. He tripped up when he took his wife down to Egypt, and he lied about her because he was afraid, didn't trust God. He tripped up when he had Ishmael because he didn't trust God. Here's another time where, and, and maybe it's those failures of the past that made Abraham say, I'm not going to trip up this time. I'm going to be faithful to God in what he's asking me uh, to do. The test reveals three things that I want you to know. Here's the first one. When God tests us, everyone, when he calls you to do something, it can be pretty terrifying. And again, I, I don't believe, I tell you what, I mean, God would have to send Gabriel it would have to be more than an, an, an inner inclination for me to do what Abraham did in this particular moment. But um, God still asks us to do tough stuff. He still asks us to do some things that are terrifying. God had waited, Abraham had waited all these years to have a son, and now he had him. And God is telling him, man, I want you to, I want you to kill your son. How terrifying that would have been. God is not shy, listen to this comment, God is not shy about asking you for what's on the top of your value pile. Because all of us have a value pile. All of us have a lot of things that we value. God's not shy at saying, you know that thing that sits on the top of your value pile? I want that. I want you to surrender that. I want you to give me that. To the rich young ruler, he said to him, you know what he said to him? Give away all your money. Give away all your money. Give up your position and come and follow me. You know, God may be saying to all of us this morning, maybe saying to you, give up your money. Surrender your money to me. Surrender your position, your power. Maybe it's a relationship that God's saying, hey, you need to give that relationship up. Maybe it's a dream of a certain future. I mean, maybe you've got a dream of how things are going to be or how they ought to be or how you want them to be. And God may be saying, I want that dream. I want you to give it to me. Now, God may give it back to you like he did, like he did Isaac to Abraham, but that don't happen all the time. He, uh, he did not say to the rich young man, hey, hey, come back. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I didn't say that to him. Maybe it's security. I don't know what it is that's at the top of your value pile. But God may be asking you for it. And it's a test. Do you value Jesus above even that thing? I'm always reminded of the joke of the guy who fell off the cliff. And as he's falling off the cliff, he grabs a little scrub brush and he's hanging on for dear life. And he starts yelling, help, help, is somebody up there? Is somebody up there? And then he hears a voice from heaven. And he says, who is it? And God says, it's me, God. God, help me. Let go of the brush and I'll catch you. What? Let go of the brush and I'll catch you. Pause. Hey, is anybody else up there? I mean, that's how we feel, isn't it? When God asks for us what's on the top of the value pile, we don't want to let go of that thing. We want God and that thing. 
But God, God, listen, I mean, God says that he's a jealous God and that he, he wants to be on the top of your value pile. And I just wonder, who's on the top of your value pile this morning? As I've been working on this, on this talk for this morning, that was, the, that was the question. Who's on top of the value pile for you? Or what's on top of the value pile for you? Because God doesn't want to share that position with anybody else. Here's the second truth I want you to note from, from this story. Uh, when, it comes to, um, when it comes to the, um, the prioritization, It's faith empowered by the Holy Spirit is what equips us to obey his commands no matter how hard. It's your faith. Some people aren't going to like that. Some people are going to say, no, it's not. Your faith is weak. And and yes, I totally agree with that. I'm saying faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I am telling you, it's your faith. It's your faith that gives you the power and the ability to say to whatever God is saying, yes, Lord, I will. Yes, Lord, I'll surrender that. Yes, Lord, I'll give that up. We've been reading just the judges on Tuesday morning and breakfast, and we just read the story of Gideon. And we came to the conclusion, if you haven't read the story lately, it says the angel of the Lord or messenger from God came to Gideon there while he's, he's hiding out threshing wheat. And um, we came to the conclusion pretty clearly that the angel of the Lord comes and he looks just like Dick Lane or Butch. I mean, he just looks like a person. He, he doesn't come with fiery swords and wings and all that kind of stuff. And he says to Gideon, hey, you're the mighty man that God's going to use to deliver the people from Midian. And, uh, and Gideon just, you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't know what to think about that. He says, well, basically kind of prove it. Hey, we'll go get you some food. So he go get him some food. When he comes back, the guy burns up the food and then disappears. Well, that's enough for Gideon. Hey, that was the angel of the Lord. And, and what that, that angel told him to do was to go... Uh, or I don't remember if the angel told him or if this is just one of those things that he heard from God in his heart. I can't remember which we decided. But he goes and he destroys his father. In front of his father's house is an idol, a, a, an idol pole. And he burns it and he, and he sacrifices a, a, a bull on it, right? He pulls it down, burns it, sacrifices a bull. And he gets a reputation because of that. And then at the next harvest when the Midians come in to take over all of Israel's stuff... Gideon now has a reputation throughout of all of Israel as the guy who burned the, the Baal's totem pole. And, and 32,000 people respond when, when he sends out this message. Hey, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to lead you. 32,000 men respond because of what he did. Uh, and this, is, this is where I tell you guys, I don't think you heard an audible voice. We were talking in Sunday school this morning that it seems like God spoke audibly at times in the past, and I, I'm sure he has, and even in the present. But... but I think that's far and few and in between. And, and, and I don't think he heard a voice. But he heard it in his heart. God speaking to him. That's way too many men. Send anybody home that's scared. Remember the story, guys? Sends everybody home that's scared. 22,000 people leave. Now I'm Gideon and I'm thinking, man, what have I done? Seriously, watching the dust of 22,000 people leave. And now your, your soldiers are down to a third. But then he hears it again. Still too many, Gideon. And he comes up with this test. Down at the water, anybody who laps the water, sits up on their knees, brings the water to their mouth. Those are the guys you keep. Everybody who puts their head down and just drinks with their head down in the water, you let them go. He does that. Only 300 of the 10,000 remain. I got a point to this. I got a point to this. And then, and then Gideon in his heart is kind of like, I mean, I mean, his faith has got him there. And God says, hey, but if your faith is faltering, here's what I'd like you to do because I'm going to support your faith. I want you to go listen at the edge of the camp tonight. 
If you need to, go listen at the edge of the camp. And that's what he does. And he goes and listens and he hears the Midians talk about how they're so afraid of Gideon and he knows he's going to win. Here's, here's my point. My point is, guys, it's our faith, our trust in God and being willing to trust him for everything that, that wins the battles for us. It's what lets us say to 22,000 men, go home. It's what lets us say to 10,700 men, go home. And I'm just going to keep 300. And God the Spirit, he bolsters our faith. He helps our faith. He doesn't leave us alone. He strengthens our faith. It was Abraham's faith that let him say, I can do what God has asked me to do. And that's kind of the point that I, I this is the point I think that uh, James makes. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, saying Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, it's, it's our faith. It's our faith. And I just want to challenge you, grow your faith. Stand out on your faith. Walk out on your faith. Whatever God's telling you, you know, whatever he's saying to you, step out on your faith and let him support you. And the third thing is that God wants us to prioritize him above all. And I've already made this point, but it's the third point of this second aspect of the story. And I'd like you just to think with me for just a moment. What is it? And I already asked you this. Maybe you've thought about it. What is it that's on the top of that pile of things that you value? What's at the top? What's rivaling God for that position? Because really, God ought to be at that position. Whatever it is, God desires for you to surrender it, to prioritize him over your Isaac, whatever your Isaac is. And maybe this morning God has said to you, you know what it is. You know what it is. I, 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 it's just so clear in your heart. You don't need me to point out, I don't even know what it is. I, I can know what it is in my heart but you know what it is, and God's spoken to you. And if he has, then I'm telling you, that today the Lord is asking you again, are you willing to take your, your Isaac and put it on the altar and slit its throat and burn it up? Are you willing to do that for me? God is testing us today. I think by virtue of the story, God is testing us. Every time we read the story, God is testing us. All right, that brings us to the third aspect of the story, which is the reason why I've included it in this series leading up to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the provision that this story promises. This last aspect um, is so important. It's pointing us, I believe, to the provision of Jesus. On their way to the, uh, to the spot on the mountain, Isaac asked his dad this question. This is back at verse 7. Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. And he said, Father... Uh, Abraham replied, I'm here, son. Isaac said, the fire, the wood, they're right here. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Abraham's answer is telling to Isaac. He says, God will provide himself. God himself will provide the sacrifice. Now, again, this is, what, this is what Abraham could have meant. He could have meant saying, God will supply the sacrifice, and oh, by the way, it's you. I'm about to kill you in just a few minutes and burn you up, but I just don't want to tell you that right now. And so I'm just going to tell you that God's going to provide the sacrifice, but it's really you. But I don't really believe that's what Abraham thought. 
I really believe that Abraham thought that God would intervene and put a substitute sacrifice for his son. I, think that's, I don't think he even thought he was going to have to do anything. I don't think he thought the resurrection of Isaac was going to take place. I think he thought that God was going to supply a substitute for Isaac. So he goes and he gets all the way to the point where there's no substitute. And the Bible says, and he says, well, it's now or never. And he takes the knife. And when he takes the knife, the angel of the Lord says, that's enough. You don't need to do it. I'm just testing you to see if you love me. Verse 13. Abraham looks up at that point. Abraham looks up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, so that today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Abraham looks up. You know, I've been cleaning some of my property, nothing like this, but man, there's all kinds of vines. They've tripped me up, made me fall down and everything. I can just see how a ram could get his horns caught. He sticks his head in there for something, and he pulls back. When he pulls back, the vines get wrapped under his horn. He can't get out, and he's caught. Abraham looks up, and he sees him, and he sacrifices the, the ram for his son in place of his Son, And then he calls Mount Moriah, the place where they are, the Lord will provide. God will provide a substitute for my son. And I'm suggesting to you this morning that this is a foreshadowing, that this is a forepicture, if you would, of something that God was going to do greater in the future, something that God was going to do bigger. I, I, I agree with everyone who says that this story is pointing to something more than just God testing Abraham for what he loves the most. I think this is a story that's picturing something else. Now, the Bible never explicitly says that. The Bible never, you can't find a place where it says this is picturing what is to be. But I, but I believe there's five reasons why you and I can believe this and have really great confidence that this story is pointing us to Jesus. Let me give you those five reasons. Here's the first one. In the story, Isaac is to die, the son Abraham loves. In our story, we are the one who is to die, the one that God, the ones that God loves, the sons and daughters uh, of God. For instance, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. And we could believe that means that God loves his universe. He loves this blue marble planet sitting out in the universe. And I think that's probably all true. But in that verse where it says, God so loved the world, it's not talking about the planet. It's talking about you, Richard. It's talking about me. How about you, Jamie, Nancy? It's talking about us, the people. God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I suggest to you that we are the Isaac in the story. So many find comparisons between Isaac and Jesus. I mean, that's where you, you just read the commentaries. That's what everybody's finding, the comparison between Isaac and Jesus. And there are a number of them. Sons of promise, both of them. Sons are both willing to die. Sons both carry their wood to the sacrificial place. And uh, yeah, so I, I see those comparisons. But, but I think we're Isaac, not Jesus. I think we're Isaac. And under the pronouncement of death, just like Isaac was, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The person that sins will die. All have sinned. I believe the story is pointing 
to us, the one who is under the condemnation of death. I think there's a parallel between Isaac and Abraham and God the Father and us as creation. Number two, the story directs them to Mount Moriah. In the story Isaac, uh, of Isaac and the ram, they're on Mount Moriah. I already, I already alluded to this. I don't know if you caught it. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is where Jesus would die for us. Is that a coincidence? Well, I guess it could be. But Abraham calls the mountain. Did you get it? Jehovah Jireh. This place shall be called God has provided. And I think he's prophetically pointing to a day when God will provide a substitute for all of us, one who would die for all of us, one who would take our place, substitute himself for our death. Number three, in the story, God provides a substitute for Isaac. And this is the clearest example of substitutionary atonement in the Bible. God substitutes a ram who dies in Isaac's place. Remember, Abraham took the ram. I'm reading from the text. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. The words in place of his son, those are substitutionary language words. That, that is God taking our place. And this, beloved, is a picture of what Jesus did on Mount Moriah centuries later. He would be the substitute. That's the central tenet of our faith. It's what makes us a Christian. We believe that God substituted Christ for us, one who lived a perfect life, a spotless, a spotless life without sin, without blemish, one who was called the Lamb of God. Why? Because he would substitute himself for us. He would die in our stead, and an unmerited death, he would die in our place. God provided himself a replacement for us that we might live again and live eternally with God. And that's the good news. Jesus died so that you and I, though we die, yet shall we live. And if we live, we shall never die again. Do you believe that? I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe that? And, and that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, that's, what, that's why I believe this story is pointing us to what Jesus would do. Because it's on the same mountain. It's the same event, different people, but it's in a substitutionary atonement. And, and it is one dying for the one that someone loves, i.e., in this case, Isaac and God, in my opinion. But I have two more reasons for believing this is a story that's pointing towards Jesus. Here's the, second, here's the th fourth one. Sorry, here's the fourth one. Can't count very well. In this story, I believe Abraham glimpses, even understands the good news. I don't believe most Old Testament saints understood that. You know why I don't believe that? I don't think they knew about Jesus. I don't think they understood Jesus. I, I, you know, I don't think they had an understanding of how Jesus would substitute his life for our sins. I don't think they understood that. And, and I think I have biblical exegetical reasons to believe that. They would be found in Peter. Remember what Peter said when we studied 1 Peter? He said the Old Testament prophets wrote of things they did not understand, but they were written for us so in this day we might understand them. That's why I believe they don't always, they don't always get it. But here's the deal, guys. I think Abraham got it. I think Abraham got a picture of the good news. Why do I say that? Because in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 56, here's what Jesus says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus literally saw Jesus' day. I don't think he looked down through the corridors of time and somehow got a, a picture of what Jesus would do. But I think what Jesus meant is that somehow that day in what Abraham experienced 
He understood that one day God was going to atone for all of us. God was going to rescue all of us from death. Even as he had rescued Isaac with a ram, he was one day going to rescue all of us. Now, I'm speculating here. I don't know what led him to that conclusion, but I, but I think it's watching God rescue Isaac from that pronouncement of death. I think, I think he got a picture of it. Albert Barnes writes this, Abraham was permitted to have a view of the death of the Messiah as a sacrifice for sin represented by the command to offer Isaac. Now, Albert Barnes is seeing it different. He's seeing it in the offering of Isaac. I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it in the finding of the ram. Matthew Poole, Abraham saw Christ's day in the type of Isaac being offered and then receiving him back. Others suggest Abraham had a, a broad picture. John Gill says he saw Christ in his day, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection from the dead, in a figure in the binding of Isaac and the sacrifice of the ram and in the receiving of Isaac back from, from the dead. I, I don't know how much Abraham saw, but I think, I think it's clear he saw some of it. He, he understood that one day God would send a redeemer. And that Redeemer would, Jesus, would be Jesus. That's another reason why I believe this story is pointing to that story. And now my final point. Hang in there with me. The last reason I believe this story points us to the provision of Jesus is what the angel would say. The angel of the Lord would say to Abraham. And when he said, all the nations in you will be blessed. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Now, this is a repeat of what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's a repeat of it. Your family is going to be large and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now Paul interprets this for us in the book of Galatians, in the letter he wrote to the Galatian churches. Listen to what he said. You know, this is chapter 3 verse 7, you know that when those who have faith, these are the sons of Abraham, or Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel, the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. He says, he says, here's the good news. He tells the Galatian church that when God said he was going to bless all the nations through Abraham, what that meant was that Jesus would be the one who would make a way for everyone who would make a way for the Jews and the Gentiles, for everyone who had faith. Because everyone who'd put their faith in God, put their faith in Jesus, would be called the sons of God. More specifically, all the nations would be blessed in the same way that Isaac and Abraham were blessed that day when they found the, the ram in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac. God would give us a substitute, and that substitute would be Jesus. He'd be the Lamb of God who substituted his perfect life and unmerited death for us. And so that's the reason why I believe that this story is pointing to that story. So, here are my concluding remarks. My first concluding remark is this. Prepare yourself for Resurrection Sunday. Prepare yourself for the Sunday when we remember that God not only sacrificed his son for us, but raised him from the dead.
You know, Good Friday, we remember that God in his goodness substituted Jesus for us. Resurrection Sunday, we remember that Jesus was victorious over death, even as we shall be victorious over death. And, and so, hey, remember, prepare your heart. Be preparing your heart for that day. Maybe even we got like three weeks left. Maybe, maybe try to read each week, try to read the resurrection story and, and the crucifixion story to prepare your heart for that day that we might celebrate with great meaning. Um, in this story, we uh, see what a man would do in his love for God. And in, in uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, we see what God would do for his love for us. Mankind, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here are my final two challenges to us this morning. And they're just one line in my notes. So here they are. For those of you that follow Jesus and have put your faith in Jesus, treasure Jesus above everything else. Treasure him above your money and your position and your relationships and your power and and whatever you have, treasure Jesus above everything else. And for those of you that are listening and maybe by live stream here, but maybe even in the room, man, if you're not following Jesus, I invite you to trust Jesus, to trust the one who bore in his life your, your sin, who lived a perfect life to be the substitute for you. I, I just, I invite you, I ask you this morning, put your faith in Jesus. As Paul said, I, I beg you, I beg you as an ambassador for Christ, put your faith in him, trust him, follow him, love him with all your heart. I know in the room I'm looking to people, the first thing applies to you, treasure him with all your heart. But for those who are listening, outside maybe, or even in this room. Man, put your trust in Jesus. Follow after Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the Old Testament story of of Abraham's faith and this incredible, hard-to-understand appeal that you made to him or, or command you gave him. Lord, yet his faith was strong and your grace was immense and you provided a substitute for Isaac. Lord, in the same way you've substituted for us your son and we just bless your name and thank you for it. Lord, I want to pray for all of us, Lord, that we would treasure you above everything else. That we would would love you more than even our own lives. That we would love you more than all the riches and all the pleasures and all the things that life brings and gives by your good hand. Lord, that we would love the giver of those things more than the things you give us. And how I pray, Holy Spirit, that you you would fall on us, fall fresh on us. Even, even now in this moment, Lord. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.